Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you, as always, from my apartment on the Lower East Side of Manhattan Island. Now in the uh, wee hours of August 6th, which means that we're now just a couple of hours in to Hiroshima Day. By the time you're listening to this, it's going to be later in the day, and we're going to be well into Hiroshima Day. 76 years since the nuclear era was unleashed upon the human race, very, very dramatically. But thanks to the international dateline, it's already been Hiroshima Day in Japan for quite a few hours. I'm going to read a little news clip from Japan's Kyoto News Service. Dateline Hiroshima. Hiroshima on Friday marked the 76th anniversary of the atomic bombing by the United States, with its mayor urging world leaders to shift away from nuclear deterrence to trust-building dialogue. In the annual ceremony, which was scaled down once again this year by surging coronavirus infections in Japan, Hiroshima Mayor Kazumi Matsui called on the world leaders to support a UN treaty to ban nuclear weapons that came into effect this January, after a moment of silence was observed at 8.15 a.m., the exact time of the bombing on August 6, 1945, the mayor also highlighted the significance of combining individual efforts, particularly among youth, to encourage nuclear-armed states to change their policies. Quote, the road to abolition, important word, the road to abolition will not be smooth, but a ray of hope shines from the young people now taking up the Hibakusha's quest, he said, referring to survivors of the atomic bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, whose numbers have been decreasing rapidly due to their old age. Matsui stressed that his city would never stop preserving the facts of the catastrophe and would continue to promote a worldwide culture of peace. Quote, nuclear weapons are the ultimate human violence. If civil society decides to live without them, the door to a nuclear weapon-free world will be wide open, he said. And actually, the notion of a nuclear weapon-free world does not seem like quite as much of a um, utopian dream as it did even a few years ago. I'm going to begin on a... I'm going to have a lot of very grim things to say over the course of this rant, but I'm going to begin on an optimistic note that the first nuclear disarmament treaty in more than two decades came into force on January 22nd of this year, following its 50th ratification last October by Honduras which triggered the 90-day period required before the treaty entered into effect. The treaty in question is um, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which constitutes, in the treaty's own language, quote, a legally binding instrument to prohibit nuclear weapons, leading to their total elimination, end quote. 
an historic step forward, and the move which was applauded by the dwindling ranks of the Hibakusha in Japan, the survivors of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, on August 6th and August 9th, respectively, of 1945. The catch, however, is that while uh, 54 nations have now ratified the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, and 86 have signed the treaty, well, guess who is not included among either the signatories, much less the uh, nations that have ratified the treaty? Yeah, you guessed it. The nine countries that have nuclear weapons, the United States, Russia, China, the United Kingdom, France, India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea in the rough order of the size of their arsenals. And even as the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons advances, there is also uh, some serious steps in the wrong direction, which are going on right now. I just uh, wrote this up for my website, Counter Vortex, today, which is to say August 5th. Satellite images have revealed that China is building two new nuclear missile silo fields. The Federation of American Scientists reports that the People's Liberation Army Rocket Force, or PLARF, appears to be constructing new missile silos near Yumen in Gansu province, and that another site some 380 kilometers to the northwest near Hami in Xinjiang. The construction at Yumen and Hami constitutes the most significant expansion ever of China's intercontinental ballistic missile silos. China has for decades operated about 20 silos for its ICBMs, with 120 silos under construction at Yumen, another 110 at Hami, a dozen silos at Jilantai in Inner Mongolia, and possibly more silos being added in existing ICBM deployment areas. The PLARF appears to have approximately 250 silos under construction, more than 10 times the number of ICBM silos currently operational in China. The Chinese missile silo program now constitutes the most extensive silo construction since the U.S. and Soviet silo construction during the Cold War. So, there's a very significant step in the wrong direction. And while the immediate assumption is going to be that uh, China is undertaking this expansion to challenge the West, and that may indeed be a part of the agenda, there has long been a, uh, for the past uh, 10 years or so, there's kind of been a, um, a secret nuclear arms race in Asia between China and India, which have both been adding to their nuclear arsenals. Amid all of the uh, hoopla about North Korea getting the nuke, which is certainly an ominous development, uh, the uh, mutual um, rivalry of stockpiling, which is going on between China and India, has been getting very little attention. And of the five um, official nuclear nations, as it were, the five members of the United Nations Security Council, which are also so-called, you know, allowed to have their nuclear weapons under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, that is to say, the United States, Russia, China, the United Kingdom, and France, China is the only one which is actually adding 
to its arsenal. I'll also point out that uh, these new missile silo fields are being built in um, Xinjiang, the homeland of the Uyghurs, and in Inner Mongolia, the Uyghurs and the Mongols being two peoples, ethnic minority peoples within the People's Republic of China who are facing extreme repression at the moment, the Uyghurs facing mass internment and concentration camps, as we should all be aware. So as uh, is so often the case in every nuclear weapon state, this infrastructure is placed in the territories of internally colonized peoples, because those are the territories where uh, local people don't have the political clout to um, oppose them, and they generally tend to be sparsely inhabited and considered expendable by the central authorities. So as we note this disturbing development in China, we should also note, of course, that China remains a distant third with its some 300 nuclear warheads to the United States and Russia, which have rough parity, as it's called, with about 4,000 warheads each. Now, the U.S. and Russian arsenals are also quite significantly reduced, down from around 40,000 each at the peak of the Cold War in the 1980s. So that's some progress, but uh, it's progress which should also be kept in perspective, because their combined 8,000 warheads today is still enough to destroy the world several times. And, you know, given that we only have one world Destroying it more than once is a mere redundancy. Scientists believe that uh, 1,000 nuclear weapons would be sufficient to bring on nuclear winter if they were all used, and a significant number of them hit their targets, including cities, which would definitely mean the collapse of human civilization and possibly mean the extinction of the human species. And I'll note that uh, the U.S. and Russian arsenals have largely been reduced over the generation and change since the end of the Cold War, thanks to various arms control treaties, which Donald Trump, in his four years in office, did everything that he could to undo. The U.S. withdrew from the Open Skies Treaty, a sort of a a trust-building measure which allowed the U.S. and Russia the right to conduct aerial surveillance over each other's nuclear bases, and much more significantly withdrew from the 1987 INF Treaty, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces, with Russia promptly following suit. So now the U.S. and Russia have both withdrawn from the INF Treaty, and the Trump White House was similarly threatening to abandon the New START Treaty, for new strategic arms reduction treaty. Technically, New START treaty is redundant. New START, new strategic arms reduction treaty, which was um, set to expire this February, February 2021, and Trump was uh, threatening not to renew it. That's a a 2010 agreement that uh, limits the U.S. and Russia to 1,550 deployed nuclear missiles each. Again, still enough to destroy the world, thank you very much, but at least to only destroy it once, as opposed to multiple times. (laughs) Perhaps it should be called the Small Start Treaty, 
All right. The good news is that um, Biden, upon taking office, was able to salvage New Start. We can assume that uh, if Trump had succeeded in subverting the democratic process and cling to the presidency, the treaty would have been abandoned. Biden succeeded in salvaging it. However, there hasn't been any talk about uh, restarting the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which concerns uh, not the ICBMs, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, but the so-called intermediate-range nuclear missiles, which basically span a continent, but not the globe. And uh, these missiles, particularly the Cruise and the Pershing missile, were first put into place um, in Western Europe by Reagan back in the early 1980s after the Soviets had placed their own intermediate-range missiles in Eastern Europe, and they were removed after the 1987 INF Treaty, which was the first significant step back from the brink in the Cold War endgame. So the fact that it's been abandoned is extremely ominous, and it fell apart when uh, Russia again began deploying intermediate-range missiles, this time in, within its own territory, not within the territory of its satellites, because it really doesn't have many satellites at this point, in response to the uh, U.S. deploying uh, a new missile defense system in Poland and Romania, former Soviet satellites, which are now in the Western sphere of influence. And this all comes as the United States and Russia are backing opposite sides in the war in Ukraine, which borders both Poland and Romania. So the implications of these uh, intermediate-range nuclear missiles being put back in place by both the U.S. and Russia are more terrifying than I think most people realize. And I'll also point out that Syria is not that far away, where the U.S. and Russia are both militarily engaged, at least ostensibly on opposite sides. And I will add that the way that the destruction of cities in Syria... Aleppo destroyed by Russian warplanes, Raqqa destroyed by U.S. warplanes, and genocide in Syria, perhaps 100,000 exterminated in the Assad regime's prisons, have been normalized over the past 10 years of the Syrian war, has a morally corrosive effect that makes the use of nuclear weapons less unthinkable. So to me, I've got, you know, this grim nostalgia for the 1980s. <laughs> and uh, But the, the thing about it is that back then people were aware of the threat and you had, you know, these horrible, horrible visions in movies like The Day After and Threads of what a post-apocalypse world might be like. And it was an upsurge of protest, beginning with the protest against the, the so-called Euro missiles, the intermediate-range missiles that Reagan was deploying in Western Europe. And the big half-million rally, half-million-strong rally in Central Park on June 12, 1982, calling for nuclear disarmament, which put pressure on the world leaders to begin to de-escalate things and to step back from the brink which we seem to be very, very rapidly approaching back in the 80s. And today, I get the sense that we are heading back toward the brink once again. And while there are fewer warheads on each side, the world order is significantly more destabilized than it was back in the 1980s. And the risk 
of those warheads being used is perhaps greater. And once again, the difference between 4,000 warheads and 40,000 warheads isn't really all that meaningful when you consider that a 1,000 is enough to end human civilization. And the difference is that now nobody's talking about it. Nobody's aware of the threat. There aren't half a million people filling Central Park to call for nuclear disarmament. But there is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which is a, ste a big step forward. So once again, I'm going to try to uh, wrap it up here on a hopeful note. How many nuclear weapons states are there? Well, there are the five official ones, so to speak. The five permanent members of the UN Security Council, which are quote-unquote, allowed to have their nuclear weapons under the Non-Proliferation Treaty with the stipulation that under the terms of the treaty they are supposed to seek disarmament. And of course, once again, those are the United States, Russia, China, the United Kingdom, and France. Okay, then you have the um, so-called undeclared nuclear powers. India and Pakistan, which are not members of the non-proliferation treaty, their so-called NPT outlier states, and then the so-called secret nuclear nation, Israel. The fact that it has nuclear weapons is a rather open secret. <laughs> <clears throat> and finally, as of um, 2006, most notoriously North Korea. So uh, that's nine. The five official nuclear nuclear weapon states plus India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. Before 2006, it was eight. But this is not the first time that the number has stood at nine. There was another so-called secret nuclear weapon state back in the 1980s, apartheid South Africa, which disgracefully developed nuclear weapons with the help of Israel to threaten the uh, so-called frontline states, as they were called at the time, of uh, Southern Africa, which supported the anti-apartheid struggle and the African National Congress, principally Zambia, Zimbabwe, Angola, and Mozambique. And after Nelson Mandela of the African National Congress was elected president in 1994, and the apartheid system was dismantled, so was South Africa's nuclear weapons program and the very warheads themselves were dismantled, something Mandela has not gotten nearly enough credit for. Under his leadership, South Africa became the first and only nation on Earth to willingly dismantle its nuclear weapons and without any pressure from the outside world. And in doing so, Mandela called on the great world powers to pursue nuclear disarmament. So on this Hiroshima Day, 2021, let's honor Nelson Mandela and pressure the United States and the other declared and undeclared nuclear powers to join the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons and dare to demand the abolition of nuclear weapons in our lifetime. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything that I've been ranting about is all documented and hyperlinked. 
please support us on Patreon. We ask only $1 per weekly podcast. That's $4 a month. I think you can afford it. Help keep this dissident voice alive. Join the counter vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.